0: ready (laughs) well I wonder if you sang that song I won't be overwhelmed because you're feeling rather overwhelmed this morning I wonder if you ever wonder or perhaps at the moment are wondering where's God today where's God in my life perhaps even this week you've heard news on on the television heard on the radio and it's turned your stomach and you've thought how much worse can this world get Maybe you've even thought, evil's winning, or that's maybe what it feels like. Or perhaps in your own life, you're struggling with something, something's going on for you or for someone you love, circumstances which feel overwhelming, and God just seems silent. You can't find him. Perhaps you're uncertain as to the future, wrestling with things that don't make any sense in your life. And Satan, if you're truly honest, seems to have the upper hand at the moment. I wonder if you've ever felt like that, even if you perhaps don't this morning. Perhaps some of you do identify with those feelings this morning. Well, we come to God's word this morning. That's the joy of gathering together, isn't it? We come because God's got a word for us today. A reminder that how desperate things might feel, how far from God the world might feel, or perhaps you yourself might feel this morning, God speaks. And God speaks at just the right time. And hopefully we'll also hear a reminder that we can trust God. He won't fail us. He's not going to let us down. Well, as we've heard, we're beginning a new series this morning, looking in the Old Testament. Now we're back in the Old Testament, a prophet called Elijah. A prophet chosen by God to speak God's word, as all prophets are that we meet in the Bible and now <laughs> are called to speak God's word, particularly for Elijah at a very difficult time in um, Israel's history. And one kings and two kings, they chart that journey, the jo- journey of the Israelites, uh, God's chosen people. Um, they demanded to have a king. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. They wanted to have a king other than um, God, who was their king. They said, but we want a king that, that's with us um, But what we discover is that apart from a handful of the kings, all these kings through the time lead the people away from God rather than towards God. So by the time we meet um, Elijah, Israel is a split kingdom. It's now two kingdoms. It's um, in two factions, if you like. You've got the, the, uh, the northern kingdom, we know as Israel, and the southern kingdom, known as Judah, and um, through one and two kings, we follow the rise of these kings and the demise of these kings of Israel and Judah. And if you read it, it gets really complicated because they're talking about this, this king here from Judah and then suddenly you're talking about this king here from Israel. But if you follow the thread, um, we follow this split kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and these kings who are constantly measured through one and two kings by certain criteria. Do they lead the people faithfully to worship God alone, these kings? How do they deal with idolatry in the nation? And are they faithful to God's covenant? Um, David was, and he's the benchmark that they're often compared with. But sadly, the majority of the kings fail in all of those three aspects. And what happens is that Israel plunges deeper and deeper into this godless world um, of of idolatry and um, idol worship. So before we actually meet Elijah, which we will, I want to just read the last bit of 1 Kings uh, chapter 16. So if you've got a Bible um, or your phone, do have a look um, at 1 Kings 16. we have got you know, spending the next few weeks in uh, 1 Kings. Um, I'm going to read at, at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. What a sad story. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Desperate. Desperate times. So Jeroboam, that's Solomon's son, was king of the northern kingdom and so unable now to worship in Jerusalem. He sets up two shrines um, with golden calves he uses. Um, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? A clear violation of the command not of God not to make or have any idols. And years later here, we're told that Ahab's disobedience is even more extreme than that of Jeroboam. Shocking word in here. Ahab saw his behavior as trivial. He looked back at Jeroboam's behavior and he saw it as trivial. That extreme disobedience of his ancestors as he looks back doesn't seem to bother him. In fact, making his decision to marry a non-Israelite, Jezebel, um, we all know about Jezebel, don't we, who worshiped Baal, seems to me to be an easy step in the path of compromise and disobedience towards God for Ahab. And Jezebel didn't keep her beliefs to herself. She didn't keep them contained within the palace just for her. She brought Baal worship into the center of Israelite culture, um, leading Ahab to set up these temples and altars for worship. And in so doing, leading the Israelites further and further away from God, the one true God, further into compromise and disobedience. Compromise. It's, It's a slippery slope, isn't it? A slippery slope. Ahab didn't see his ancestors' sin as a problem. He trivialized it. He trivialized it. Didn't see it as important. And so compromise became an easy path. And I I wonder if there are things in our lives that we know are not God's best for us. Things that we know are hindering rather than growing our faith. And we've kind of trivialized them. Sort of decided, well... It's not too bad. It's, it's not really doing any harm. I don't know, That's that late-night series on Netflix, which we know isn't really filling our mind with good things, or that extra glass of wine, but it doesn't really matter, or that unkind language, that, oh, or that unhelpful relationship. What's the compromise that we're slipping into? Well, for Ahab, it was his marriage to Jezebel, wasn't it? Jezebel didn't share his trust in God. And the results are catastrophic, because rather than drawing her to the one true living God, she drags him away to worship and serve her gods. And uh, he ends up deserting the one who's given him everything. I found this quote this week um, from Timothy Keller, I found it really helpful. An idol is anything more important to you than God. It's quite simple, isn't it? An, an, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination More than God. Anything that you seek to give you what, only God can give you. The Israelites allowed other things to take the place that was rightfully God's in their lives. And it began as they allowed their faith in God to get diluted and to be compromised. So it's always a difficult question, isn't it? But what are the idols that we worship? What are the things that have become more important to us than God? So just stop for a minute and have a think about those things that take up your thoughts, that absorb your mind, that you think about a lot. Because that might be a key to those things that you're giving your time and energy to that are absorbing you and God's being compromised. I wonder if identity might be one of those idols that we have got into worshipping today. Maybe as Christians particularly, have we abandoned who we are in Christ and our identity being secure in Christ Christ and and drifted away to putting our identity in other other things, perhaps our social media, um, how many people like what we put on our social media, perhaps our position at work, perhaps our skills and abilities, what we're able to offer, have these things become more important to us than what God says about who we are, about our identity in Jesus, where do you put your identity this morning? Where do you find your identity? But what about, what about uh, money? What about wealth? It's a difficult one, isn't it, that can so easily trap us. But do we think a lot about money? Are we concerned a lot about money and wealth, trying to provide, trying to make sure we're okay? Not that that's particularly wrong, but is that consuming us and we're losing our trust and our um, and our protection in God, knowing that he'll look after us, knowing that he is the one that provides. It's when we put our trust in those things, isn't it, rather than in God. Or perhaps even our family, dare I say it, do they become more important to us than anything else that we start to look to them to give us the love and acceptance? Do they become so important or consuming for us that they drag us in and, uh, into lo- looking for our love and acceptance with them. I, I wonder, is, is God just gently prodding an area of your life that you can say, oh, yeah, I can see I'm starting to be dragged away, starting to compromise my love and my worship of God because of these other things that are taking his place in my life? I often think about God being king of our th- on the throne of our lives and, you know, has something else come and sat on that throne um, And it needs to be shifted. Anyway, let's get back to our story. So 1 Kings 17, um, I'm going to read from verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan, you will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to, to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kereth ravine east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. And the ravens, ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. From the brook. What a stark contrast, even in those few verses. There's the man of the world, Ahab and Jezebel. Um, and then there's this man of God, Elijah. And uh, I loved one commentator says, Elijah bursts onto the biblical stage without any introduction. And it's true, isn't it? He just kind of arrives. <laughs> and, uh, none of the usual introductions that you get through the Old Testament of, you know, the son of so-and-so and he went to so-and-so and he liked watching so-and-so or whatever. Nothing like that. We don't even get told, actually, where Elijah meets Ahab. We don't. There's no information. It's just here he is. Elijah arrives. And it's just beautiful, because that's what God wants us to realize, is that God speaks into this situation. Out of nowhere, here's God, right in the center. But there are some lovely um, clues about um, Elijah. First of all, his name gives us a clue. Elijah means Yahweh is my God. So his very name declares exactly where he's putting his trust, doesn't it? And and the clue in what he says, uh, um, listen to the statement again. He he says to Ahab, the God of Israel is alive, and I'm serving him. No doubt about where Elijah stands. He wants them to hear this message. All the idols you serve, all these gods that you're worshipping, they're dead. They can't speak. They can't act. They can't give life. You can't form a relationship with an idol. They're not like the one true living God You see his confidence that he has in this living God, in Yahweh. He speaks God's word into this really difficult, really desperate situation that's going on. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. What's really scary here is that Israelites have provoked God's anger. Difficult concept, isn't it? They're compromised is blatant sin against him, and God has now said enough, and he speaks into that situation, he responds to what's going on. So to put it um, into context, um, Baal was a storm god, he was seen as a fertility, um, the the fertility of the land depended on him sending rain, and that's why they worshipped Baal, And Elijah's prophecy goes straight as a direct attack into that belief, doesn't it? It's like a slap in the face to the Baal worshippers and to Baal himself. He's confronting head-on their belief in this dead idol. He can't act. He's not alive. I just love this. God steps in, doesn't he? He steps in. His word is spoken into this most difficult place. But it's a beautiful, simple way that God does it, isn't it? By this man who's obedient to him. I just wonder, for you this morning, as you sit here, are you facing a difficult situation? Are you in the middle of some turmoil? Does life feel helpless or helpless or godless even at the moment for you? Or perhaps you're feeling on your heart, yeah, I've been unfaithful, I know I've been unfaithful to the living God. I've been compromising in the way that I live before him, in the choices that I've been making. This tells us, the Bible tells us that God does and he will speak. That he knows your situation, whatever it is that you're facing. He knows where you're at. He knows what you need. And he has a word for you. He will speak to you. Such a message of hope here in the middle of this despair. What we seem seems like the success of evil, doesn't it, um, in this world or perhaps in our own lives and experience. We can be sure that God will speak, God will speak. And we can be sure, in fact, that even when it feels like God is silent, he is at work and he is preparing a response to what is happening and going on. And we see this most clearly, don't we, in in the cross. When we look at the cross, we, we see that sin seems to have won. Jesus was betrayed and beaten and hung on a cross to die. And it seemed in that moment that things were beyond desperate, didn't it? Like the world had turned their back on the saviour that God had sent. It was the most awful moment. And yet God spoke. God spoke in that most unexpected place, didn't he? He had his counterattack ready. Defeating death, raising Jesus to life, bringing hope and life in the midst of the most difficult despair. And that's why the cross is central to all that we hold dear. It's why it's central to our faith. Because Jesus, the word of God, made flesh, spoke into the darkness. His light, his word, shone and dispelled the darkness, bringing light and life to all who will receive him, the Bible says. God will forgive our sin, our failure, our compromise, our disobedience, because of his word made flesh, dying on the cross for us. And here we see Elijah showing great obedience, great courage, speaking up. Um, And and I guess for you, I know often it is for me, that when we're in difficult times, they don't necessarily get better, do they? And sometimes we hear God speak, but actually things don't improve, nothing changes. And that's very much uh, what happens here for Elijah. Things actually get worse, don't they? A drought comes awful suffering still to come. But then the word of God came to Elijah. But then the word of God came to Elijah. And I just want to say a little aside here, because do you notice that um, God is revealing things to Elijah one step at a time? So he doesn't um, tell Elijah A, B, C, and D. He just tells Elijah A. He tells Elijah that there's going to, go and tell Ahab that there's going to be a drought. And that's Elijah's obedient. He doesn't say, then I'll look after you, does he? Just, and isn't that your experience so often? <laughs> You're like, God, can you tell me the end of the story? I want to get there. And God says, no, just be obedient in the next step. It's trust, isn't it? God calls us to trust him. I was going to say it's that simple, but it's not, is it? We all know it's not that simple. But in a way, it is that simple. It's like, however difficult life is, God says, trust me. I will show you the next step. And he wants us to lean on his sovereignty, doesn't he? He wants us to lean into his sovereignty, to trust him that he does know and that he holds us, even when we don't understand what, what's going on, even when there doesn't even seem to be an answer We can lean into his sovereignty knowing that we can trust him because he holds us in that space. I think that's so important to grasp hold of, even at the moment life's really good for you, because we get to those places, don't we, where things don't make sense and life does get difficult. And we know in that moment our choice is not to lean out, (laughs) but to lean into his sovereignty, knowing that he's in control and that we can trust him in that space. Oh, so exciting. I think that's brilliant. (laughs) So, Elijah, um, no doubt, would have loved to have known, wouldn't he? Wouldn't we love to know? You know, Elijah would have loved to have known, God, how long is this strike going to last? Could you just tell me that? Could you just tell me, are you going to punish him, or is he going to relent? Like, what's going to happen? But instead, Elijah hears something really quite different. He hears an invitation to trust God for his protection and for his provision. So let's—I just like to read those verses again. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah: Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kereth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with the food there. See, Elijah's story reminds us, doesn't it, that God turns up where we least, ex- when we least expect, and in ways we don't expect, doesn't He? And so I suppose. The question we need to ask is, are we willing to trust God for that next step, even though we don't know what it is? Are our ears and our heart open and ready to, in that space of difficulty and and turmoil to say, I'm willing to obey, even if I don't understand? But it also reminds us that God brings life, doesn't he, into dry places that he brings water even when there's drought, that God will and does sustain us if we trust him, even using the most unlikely things like ravens, which for the Israelites, for Elijah, would have been a really tough call because they would have been considered unclean um, by God's people. But God chooses even a raven. Like, "Mm, would you eat food (laughs) delivered by a raven? But anyway, (laughs) God uses um, the most unusual things, doesn't he? And and Elijah trusted God to do that. Elijah was in hiding, he was out in the wilderness, but he was waiting for God to lead. And, you know, I I don't, often when it's printed on a page, you just read it as a story. But for Elijah, that can't have been easy, can it? I don't think it was easy for him at all. But what really strikes us in this story is that there's no sense that he wavers at all from his confidence that God is going to provide. There's no sense of wavering. So I wonder if perhaps you're in a time of drought, whether you're feeling spiritually dry and barren this morning because things are difficult, because uh, things are tough for you, or perhaps for those you love. Perhaps if you're facing uncertainty or ill health, financial worries, and things feel so overwhelming and God seems so far away, we need to hold on to this story, don't we, that reminds us again that God turns up often, when we least expect him and in ways we don't expect, that he won't fail you. Really rich stuff to hold on to. There's, there's so much in this story, so much that we could talk about God's provision and his sustaining of Elijah through these difficult times. But there was, some, there was something else that, that um, struck me and I, I want to share with you, and it's in verse 5. And it says, So he did what the Lord had told him. So Elijah did what the Lord had told him. See Elijah's so obedient isn't he? He doesn't question or discuss or argue or try to reason with God. How many of us have done that in the past? Um, No he doesn't. He's obedient. He obeys and I'd like to suggest that there's a massive link here between obedience and trust. I think obedience is a sign of our trust in God. We've discovered that one king's makes for really sad reading, doesn't it? Most of the kings led Israel away from God into a life of idolatry and and worship of foreign gods, a life of compromise and disobedience. We've uh, read of the depths of sin and wickedness. We've read of God being provoked to anger. And by the end of chapter 16, when we got there, we were left wondering, is there possibly a way back? And then Elijah comes on the scene. What, in stark contrast, doesn't he? And he does what the Lord has told him. And I think this just makes this, ver- this verse, chapter 5, stand out because it's in such stark contrast to the Israelites and their kings who knew God's covenant, who knew God's commandments, who knew the risk of being disobedient to their God and yet they continued to turn their back on him and go their own way. But Elijah, no, Elijah did what God the Lord had told him to do. He trusts God to be true to his word. He trusts God to be faithful. He trusts God to deliver on his promises. Elijah knows, Elijah knows that God is enough, that he doesn't need anything else. He knew that to serve the living God was the only way. To follow Yahweh, to be in relationship with Yahweh, to be part of God's covenant people was the only way to live. And he knew that God would keep his promises. He knew as he looked back that God had never failed him before, never failed the people of God before. He knew that God loves and cares for him and his people. He knew that God was enough. That God is all he needs. That nothing else can supplement, nothing else can satisfy Nothing else, brothers and sisters, can see us through these tough times in life. Only God. Only God. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who is able to save. So, do you trust God completely this morning? Is there something you need to let go of that's crept in, that you've started putting your trust in, that you've wavered? Your focus has been absorbed by something else other than God? pulled away been compromising do you trust God completely this morning really excited about this series I'm sure a lot of you know Elijah's story but it's a great story and and Elijah does great things for God in the in the passages that we're going to be looking at but I'd like to suggest it's because it's because of this experience that he's going through here he's learning how to trust God in the tough times so that God can use him in His obedience in the in the um, time ahead. So Elijah trusts in Yahweh, trusts Yahweh to be God. I wonder, have you, have you put your trust in Yahweh? Have you put your trust in God this morning? Because you can, He invites you to come because of Jesus. Put your trust in Him. But I want to finish by asking you a question, if that's okay. And this question is, which camp are you in? Because there's an Elijah camp. There's an Elijah camp, an obedient, committed, listening, trusting God despite what circumstances you might be in, holding on to the truth of God's word, trusting that God is sovereign, but also understanding that God doesn't tolerate unfaithfulness. He longs for us to be totally committed to him, trusting that he is enough, that he will sustain, he will provide, even when life gets beyond challenging, even in the most difficult circumstances, even when you can't see a way out, he is enough. And he will use crazy, unconventional sometimes ways of speaking into that situation. So that's the Elijah camp, trust and obey. Then there's the Ahab camp, isn't there? And I think this is the I'm not really sure I can trust God camp. And I'm sure we sometimes find ourselves in that camp. I'm not sure God is enough camp. It's the compromise camp, isn't it? But the trouble with that compromise camp, that I'm not sure God, I can trust God camp, is that we end up drifting. We end up drifting away and putting our trust in other things, allowing God um, to be pushed out and other things to take his place. So it's a simple question. Which camp are you choosing to be in this morning? The Elijah camp. Or the Ahab camp? Just want us to be quiet for a minute, if that's okay. Maybe close your eyes. What's God said to you this morning about this wonderful man, Elijah, and how he's responded to God?